Good morning or good day to everyone. Uh, I th I'm Nicholas Bornholz of Capital Link, and I would like to thank you all for uh, the overwhelming attendance that we have today at uh, this webinar. We could not have picked uh, a more critical and a more timely topic than the one that we are going to address uh, today uh, at our roundtable discussion about the challenges of crewing uh, and about the challenges in, in the seafarer community and the seafarer uh, career. One of the many changes of uh, COVID, I think, is how the wider public and governments have come to look differently at the people who have a direct impact on our daily life. I think we all look differently to the people who deliver the mail, who are at the uh, counter at uh, the supermarkets, uh, at the hospitals, all those people who perform critical functions that keep the supply chain and our daily life intact. However, I'm not sure that the same amount of awareness and concern that we have all come to develop uh, for our fellow citizens and human beings, that we have the same degree of awareness and empathy for the seafarers. And I'm not sure that the wider public realizes the amazingly critical role that the maritime community and seafarers in, in specifically play for our daily life. It has been said that had it not been for ships, Half the world would freeze and the other half would starve. And indeed, more than 90%, I will repeat the number, more than 90% of the global trade is carried through ships. A lot of people are familiar with aviation, railroad, trucks, because we see them every day. They are not probably aware that the vast majority of cargo is picked up and delivered uh, from port to port uh, on ships. And that could not happen without the seafarers who man those ships, who remain there, and they perform the critical function of um, operating the ship, of going to the port, picking up the cargo, and delivering it. And it's very interesting that in the situation we have today, the vast majority of ports are particularly happy to accommodate the cargo operations because they're very important to their own livelihood and to the livelihood of their economy and the citizens, but at the same time, they're not particularly uh, accommodating to crew changes. And we have uh, a, a very big number of seafarers who have been stranded actually on ships for a long time. So we have a humanitarian problem, we have a safety problem. It's a big, big issue. And I'm delighted that Capital Link uh, has been able to, uh, to put this together. Uh, I would like to, to start by thanking Andreas Hatsipetru from, uh, from Columbia Ship Management because we were talking together uh, and about all the issues in this uh, you know, happening today, and that gave us the idea and the motivation to put uh, another uh, webinar on this topic. And of course, I would like to thank everybody for being with us today. I'd like to, to thank uh, the two sponsors, Ship Money and Ship, uh, Ship Neutral. I'd like to thank uh, Eric uh, Martin from Tradewinds for being an expert moderator. And of course, we have a stellar panel. We have uh, two uh, directly involved uh, in the shipping, you know, operating uh, ships, uh, 
uh, Euronav and uh, um, Columbia Ship Management, we have uh, the IMO, uh, the regulator, we have uh, the Industry Association, uh, the International Chamber of Shipping, and two major uh, industry participants, uh, Steamship Mutual and, and Ship Money. Uh, so uh, I will turn it over to Eric. Uh, I would like to thank you again. Uh, it's a phenomenal topic and uh, we couldn't have picked a better panel. And uh, again, thank you all for, uh, for being with us today. Well, thank you, Nicholas. Uh, thanks thanks for, for, uh, for inviting me to moderate this panel. I mean, this is uh, uh, at Tradewinds. This has been a very important uh, topic while, while the, um, the world right now is of course facing a health crisis as a as a spin-off of that the the shipping industry and the seabit fares on board ships are um are are facing this uh, additional crisis of 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 difficulties uh in in carrying out uh crew changes meaning that seafarers are uh not only stuck at sea but also uh in the cases of seafarers that want to work stuck at home so uh, it's, uh, um, and it was only, you know, it was only last week that I was wondering as I, you know, my only expertise here is I read all of Tradewind's stories pretty much. Uh, and um, I was starting to wonder whether kind of we've, in this crisis, uh, we're starting to see, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel and things are starting to improve. Uh, and then my, my colleagues uh, in our Singapore office uh, reported on all of the new restrictions that um, have uh, been imposed in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in Malaysia, um, and and leading to the question whether in 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 the efforts to resolve this this crisis, we're um, taking two steps back each time we take a step forward, and and uh, making in increasingly poignant today the question of how to get through this uh, this crisis. So, um, I mean, quickly to, to introduce our, our panelists, um, we have Andreas Hajipetru, Managing Director at uh, Columbia Ship Management, uh, Stamatis Borboulis, uh, General Manager at uh, Euronav Ship Management. Um, we've got Frederick Kenny, uh, Director of Legal Affairs and External Re Relations at the IMO. Uh, Guy Platten is Secretary General uh, at the uh, International Chamber of Shipping, so the, um, the Association of uh, Ship Owners. Uh, bringing that perspective. Uh, Stuart Ostro is uh, founder and president of Ship Money, and Chris Adams with the insurance perspective uh, from uh, Steamship Mutual. So what I wanted to do to start off was, was get a, you know, just get a good sense of where we are now uh, and, and what, you know, what is the status of this, this crewing uh, crisis. And I want to start out with Guy um, uh, Guy, could you give us kind of an overview of how you see it from the ship owner's perspective as to where uh, this, this crewing crisis is right now? So I think just give you some broad numbers. We estimate now there's between 250 and 300,000 seafarers beyond the end of their contracts on board ships now. And the other side of that call, of course, is 250 to 300,000 seafarers ready to leave homes to, uh, to go and relieve them. So we're talking over half a million seafarers are caught up in this situation now. And every week that passes, the situation gets worse, not, not better. You know, we have had some success in terms of, of getting crew changes done. And I know ship owners and ship managers have gone to extraordinary lengths in order to get crew reliefs to happen. We had one case of a tanker owner 
uh, diverting his ship from the west coast of Africa all the way to the United Kingdom in order to undertake a crew change and effectively taking that ship apart for nearly a, a month in order to do so. So, I mean, it's, it's it, you know, ship owners have gone to the to everything possible to try and do crew changes, but yet we still have this position where governments seem to, uh, at a moment's notice, shut their borders and they're not recognising that seafarers are essential workers and actually they're going to be key to having the world, helping the world recover when this pandemic is over and we really need to, to give them some sort of priority. So we, you know, as you said, we've had some success. We work really closely with the International Maritime Organization. I'm sure you'll hear from Fred shortly on an unprecedented level. And we work very closely with the global trade unions like the International Transport Workers Federation to try and put in place measures and protocols to help persuade governments that seafarers are essential and that we need to facilitate their travel. So it's um, in terms of the real issues we have now is in major labor supply countries, particularly the Philippines, which is only allowing a limited number of seafarers in and out each day. And that's caused particular problems in getting seafarers uh, back out to the ships. Um, in India, it's easing a little bit because there's, 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 they're allowing charter flights in and out. And also there's talk of uh, restarting some scheduled flights which will help things. But all we go around the world is we, is we overcome one challenge, two or three to pop up uh, to, 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 to make it life difficult. So in the last week, we alluded to is in Singapore and in Hong Kong, they've actually tightened up the whole issue of crew changes in Hong Kong and Singapore. It's much more difficult to undertake a crew change now. And these are key maritime hubs. So it's, but then, you get other places like Egypt is starting to open up and encourage crew changes. So it's a constantly moving picture. But at the moment, the situation is still getting worse, not better. And, and ultimately, this needs government to step in politically and help us solve this. Let's let's uh, let's turn to the the, the ship management perspective. Uh, Stamatis, could, can you tell us how um, how Euronav is experiencing this 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 crew change? Uh, crisis and, and what steps you've had to take to uh, to get through it. Eric, thank you, and uh, Nicolas, thank you for inviting me to this uh, panel. Uh, as uh, Guy said before, uh, we are facing a continuously changing situation where we have to organize what is possible to be organized but there are so many different parameters that need to be taken into consideration, which makes the solution of the problem very, very difficult. And the moment that we are seeing some areas that are giving an opportunity for certain crew changes to be performed, uh, very soon and when we start to plan to that direction, as was discussed just before, uh, the situation starts to change, then we have to reschedule and replan uh, our efforts. So it is a situation that has been uh, developing since uh, middle March. We hoped that uh, it's going to become better and we start seeing some signs of improvement very recently. But again, uh, we fear that uh, we are facing again a deterioration where more countries, especially in, the, in Asia, are uh, closing down or making so difficult the process that practically 
does not allow uh, the crude chains to be affected. Uh, to mention that uh, certain countries require a call related to commercial activity in order to allow uh, crude changes. Some other countries uh, ask for the ship to be there while the whole crude change is uh, affected. Um, and uh, having ships sailing all over the world, uh, we have uh, ended up with a considerable number of uh, seamen uh, being uh, overdue for their contracts. Uh, and the number is growing. We saw recently some uh, kind of uh, uh, reaching a plateau of, and hoping to, uh, to see some improvement, but uh, the latest developments are again a bit discouraging. So we do our best to exploit whatever is available. And I have to say that uh, being in ship management for many years, I always admired the challenges that the crew departments have to affect the crew changes within the, especially for the tankers with a lot of restrictions in terms of the experience of the crew that is taking over from the off-signers to fulfill the matrices, experience matrix and service matrices that are required for, for any crew change. So now it is really amazing, uh, amazingly difficult, uh, this, uh, this effort. And uh, we are continuously uh, looking every day into the developments. Uh, what Euronav is doing more than that is to uh, put every effort to, uh, to, make, to create an awareness to the general public and to the governments of the situation and the need to take care of, this, uh, of the seafarers, which sometimes uh, go unnoticed, as uh, Nicholas said at the beginning. Uh, whereas uh, uh, the activity that, and the service that they offer is uh, vital for every, every person on board or every person on earth. So uh, we, we have uh, uh, communicated to wherever we can the need. We have also supported uh, an initiative to blow the ship's horns uh, at uh, noontime whenever uh, this is possible and without uh, causing any disturbance to the safety of operation in order to exercise, uh, to, to give a signal that the situation is still not improving. Uh, on top of that, uh, we offer to the seafarers extraordinary relief measures, financial, psychological support. Um, we also uh, provide uh, free internet uh, connectivity in order uh, to relieve a bit the sense of isolation that is happening on board. Um, uh, continuing the, uh, you know, in the with with the ship managers, Andreas. I mean, would you would you agree with what uh, Guy said at the start that the situation is getting worse before it gets better? Hello, Eric. Hello, everybody. Thanks for the question. Thank you, Nicholas, for um, uh, the panel. Um, it, I'm not sure whether it's worse or better, really. The fact is that 
we are going through a really, really difficult situation. No matter how you look at it, bad is bad. Um, uh, as far as the fleet we operate is concerned, we, we have about, and we are, I would consider us one of the first comers when we realized back in January that this COVID thing could become a very big thing. We, we started even relieving crew before the due dates, before it became a very big uh, uh, subject worldwide. But we are still nowadays with 20% of our seafarers stranded on board the ships. And believe me, um, what Stamadi said earlier fully applies to us. We do everything we can so that uh, we facilitate the crew changes. And still this is not good enough because it, this is a situation which is out of our control. We depend on uh, the regional and, and even, even uh, port restrictions. If I take as an example, the Philippines, even if you do a crew change physically at the Philippines, this, this must be done only in Manila. You cannot do it in any other port as an example. So each country and region sometimes they have their own um, uh, requirements. So it, it's really a situation that um, uh, is very bad. It's, uh, it's critical really uh, with regards to the um, safety of the ships and so on. And I know Chris is very much interested on this topic. But what we do nowadays, and I'm sure it's not only Euronav, but uh, Columbia, but also a number of other companies, we really pay extra care towards our crew. We are very close to the crew. We communicate with them in a very transparent way because this is a common problem. We, we share with them the, the issues we have and the problems we have for the crew changes because we is together and they realize that really this is not the operator's failure if we fail a crew change, but it is what it is. Um, so, so we really take the operators um, motivated and, uh, and, and there is a tremendous effort by everybody really to keep high. We, in addition to what Stamad is mentioned with regards to free internet, uh, mental health, escort and so on, we went uh, through the stage of even creating health campaigns and fitness campaigns by sending that they can um, that they can exercise on board themselves uh, with certain logbooks and so on. We communicate with them as top management very frequently. As an example, we have our CEO um, uh, advisory and uh, announcements to the fleet on a weekly basis, so that all the seafarers are connected. And uh, and and overall, we are really trying very hard to keep. Um, the flow of work um, uh, on board the ships uh, unaffected by the situation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, Stuart, you know, when we were preparing for this, uh, this call, this, uh, this webinar, uh, it was you who mentioned the, um, the fact that this isn't just about crew who need to get off ships, but also about crew members who, uh, who need to work and who are, who are at home. Could, could you talk us through that? If, if you read the thread in the industry, 
trade winds and all the publications, all the social media and whatnot, obviously the, the crisis du jour are, is repatriation and the entire conversation about uh, safety and the crew members that are stuck on board, uh, the port issues, the restrictions, et cetera. It seems that there is no conversation whatsoever about the individuals who are at home, the seafarers that are unemployed, that are struggling to uh, take care of their family members and their need to get back to work. So I, I think we as an industry need to be a little bit broader in our thinking, not just about uh, the current situation with the crew members that are on board, but the individuals that are stuck at home that need to work, and beyond that, actually, their family members as well. Uh, there's very little conversation, actually, about uh, the family members that are uh, affected uh, by the seafarers that are, that are at home. I, I do think that the charitable organizations, ISWAN, Sailor Society, et cetera, do a, a really good job uh, in terms of, of, of promoting this as an issue as well as financially supporting them, something that our organization is, is very involved in. Uh, but it, it is not a, a common uh, point of discussion, uh, unfortunately, in the community. I, I wanted to raise a question um, for, for the panel, actually. As we are talking about this issue, I think that we should look at uh, the, the cruise industry. Uh, the cruise industry, obviously, uh, you know, became the poster child for, uh, for COVID, certainly in Australia and, and whatnot. But the industry itself has done a remarkable job of getting crew members home. Uh, and, and, and they tens and tens of thousands of individuals that were stuck on these ships. And for the most part, uh, I, I believe that they've cleared all of those individuals worldwide off the ships uh, significantly uh, since uh, the, over the last month or so. So one has to ask the question, uh, how did the cruise industry do this and, uh, and what, what can we learn from that relative to the commercial industry? Now, different, uh, different um, uh, factors are involved, obviously aggregation of crew members, uh, the ability to move crew members en masse into various parts of the world. But two observations, I think. One is that CLIA did a tremendous job in terms of coordinating the entire industry and communicating the problems associated with that. And I also think that there was a really great collaboration among the cruise companies themselves. So it seems to me that we all talk about the problem and we talk about it with the government agencies and the ports, but I'm not sure to what extent uh, the Columbia Ship Management or the Euronavs are coordinating with their counterparts or, or competitors in terms of trying to aggregate uh, crew moves. Uh, so I just wanted to throw that up as a topic uh, of conversation to the panel. Uh, uh, I don't know if you can hear me. Okay. The 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 uh, as perhaps you are aware, Stuart, we are operating a fleet of about 15 um, plus passenger ships and. Somehow it was completely different signing off our seafarers from the passenger ships because you had a situation that there was no pressure to put other people on board. So it was just sign off. Uh, all the cruise ships are now operating with much reduced uh, crew. And at the same time, we could work together with the cruise operators to find specific safe locations that you can do a crew change uh, or crew replacement. So. So the cruise industry, and, and another element which uh, differentiated really the situation is that because of the numbers of people repatriating, it was easier relatively to do even a charter flight to sign off everybody together because on the passenger ships, you have a lot more, uh, more crew. 
But actually, you are raising a very valid question. How, how did we really uh, collaborate with our um, um, with other ship managers? And I can tell you that in my uh, experience uh, in the industry for more than 25 years, it's the first time I have really worked so, so closely together with other ship managers and owners to do the crew changes jointly and join forces um, in all directions. The problem, and we did, I mean, we lobbied through, obviously, through ICS, uh, we lobbied through BIMCO, we have um, ourselves, we discussed extensively with the Cyprus government, we joined another forum with, uh, with um, a number of other managers, and we have jointly approached certain authorities like the NPA for, for special uh, measures. The problem we have is that despite the good efforts of the IMO, the governments, they just look within their own box, within their own arrangements, and their interests change with time. And then one day you can do a crew change, a few weeks later maybe it's impossible. So it's not really a matter of what the operators are doing, but it's rather on the other side, how the society and the governments are, are really looking into this, into the subject. Before we, um, uh, and I want to turn to uh, Fred and Chris in a second, but before we do that, can I just turn back to Guy for one quick second? Uh, Guy, could you give us just a, a kind of an overview of how big the problem is in terms of how many seafarers are stranded out of the, the, the full population of seafarers? So we estimate, not excluding cruise ships, there's about 1.2 million seafarers currently serving on board ships at the moment. And uh, typically every month, at least 100,000 would need to be changed out. So it's about at least 250,000 now have gone beyond the end of their contracts, some for many months beyond the end of their contracts. And so I hope that gives a sort of size of the problem. And of course, then you've got the other side, as, as, uh, as Stuart was, was mentioning, you've got the 250,000 waiting to join, a lot of them who are suffering you know, a great deal economically. Well, if I could, if I could turn to Chris now, Chris, could you, could you, could you tell us what sort of the insurance sector is kind of concerned about as this, uh, as this crew crisis uh, continues? Yes, certainly, uh, Eric, and good, good afternoon to everybody participating. Um, as a former seafarer, I can remember very well the sense of anticipation and excitement as you reach the, the end of your tour of duty, the ship's approaching its home, home port. And if that, um, your, your sign-off date was delayed for a few days for operational reason, reasons, that, that of itself was disappointing enough. But in the situation we have here, where our seafarers are beyond their contracts by many, many months, I cannot begin to imagine uh, the sense of disappointment and anxiety that these guys are, are facing. And if you build on, on that, um, you've, got, you've got a tremendous increase in, in risk because if you've got fatigued, tired, potentially demotivated crew operating your vessels, that must increase the prospect of there being, being an accident. And if, if this was any other transport sector, if you had people who were uh, operating vehicles in a state that was uh, where they were fatigued, where they were de demotivated, there would be an absolute outcry amongst the public about, about this. This doesn't happen because it's the shipping, shipping industry. There is, I regret to say, a huge amount 
of sea blindness around the around the world. There is a, a huge disconnect between uh, the desires for the latest piece of technological equipment and how that equipment actually gets to uh, gets to the user. Uh, people don't think of ships. They don't think of the important part they they play. So. Um, from, a, from an insurance perspective, I'm concerned that there is a risk, not only to the individuals, you know, it's not, it's not right from a humanitarian perspective, if nothing else, for these guys to be kept at sea for uh, well beyond their, their contracts. They are suffering anxiety. They're no doubt anxious about their, their families, families at home. They're anxious about their own, their own condition. But when you couple with that, uh, the risk of a, uh, a casualty happening, um, I really hope it doesn't take a serious maritime casualty for people to sit up and take notice about this problem and do something something about it. So this is this isn't just a humanitarian issue, but also a, a significant safety issue. It is, yeah. I see. There's a, there's a very significant safety safety issue. Um, there's uh, there is a clear link between between fatigue and potential um, demotivation, and de even with well well trained individuals, if they're fatigued, if they're de demotivated, the potential for them to uh, to commit an error um, is is in is increased. So as so like you know, as we turn to you know turning the conversation to what should happen next? What, what are our solutions? I wanted to turn to Fred. Um, you know, we heard Guy at the top of the, 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 the webcast talk about the need for uh, government action. And, and, uh, and it's been actually interesting to see the alignment between um, the, the seafarers unions uh, and, their, and the employers on this topic, on, on that measure. And I wanted to see, ask you kind of, uh, Fred, how does, um, what's the IMO's role in in finding a solution to this, and and where are you finding um, uh, where are you finding successes, and where are you finding friction? Well, um, thanks, Eric, and um, thank you to Nicholas for um, organizing this event. Uh, the more people that can uh, become aware of the situation and the potential solutions, the better, because. Uh, if we are going to solve this crisis, I think it actually is going to be an all-hands-on-deck evolution, and uh, I'll talk a little bit more about it later, but um, uh, we, we need to find the solution, and we need to find it quickly uh, because, um, as I think the previous speakers have mentioned, this is a crisis on a number of different levels. It's, uh, it's a humanitarian crisis for the seafarers that either can't get home or can't get to the ships to work. It's a potential uh, a safety crisis, as Chris just uh, mentioned, because, and it has the potential to become an economic crisis because the fact of the matter is, seafarers cannot stay at sea indefinitely. And uh, they, the, the seafarers that are stranded on the ships that are working past their contracts, you know, the, the maximum uh, contract under the Maritime Labor Convention is 11 months, and we have seafarers that have been out there for 15, 16, 17 months now. Uh, and they continue to work, and they continue to deliver for the world. Uh, it's not being well recognized, but the dedication and professionalism that they have displayed is remarkable. So what are we doing to try to uh, get past this crisis? There's, uh, things are happening on a number of different levels. First, um, the IMO uh, is putting out a lot of guidance 
to help facilitate crew changes. Uh, the, if you haven't been to the IMO website, www.imo.org, uh, I'd invite you to take a look, uh, click on the red banner for COVID-19, and there's a trove of information on that, including uh, the industry-developed protocols uh, for uh, safe crew changes. It's a, it's a, the, the protocols address 12 different phases of a crew change, both for crew leaving home and getting to their ships, and then for uh, seafarers departing ships uh, and being repatriated. If those protocols are implemented by governments and if the industry and seafarers uh, abide by the protocols, and that's also very important because it only takes one or two seafarers that may not be following the protocols that, that arrive in a port and, and are infected that may cause a, uh, an overly restrictive reaction that can impact the entire industry. But at the same time, if governments are not taking these protocols on board and implementing them, it just continues the problem. Uh, so we're putting out a tremendous amount of guidance to try to help uh, the industry and governments cope with the, the situation. We're also, uh, through the Secretary General's Seafair Crisis Action Team, dealing with individual cases where diplomatic intervention is, is needed to resolve situations. And, we've seen everything under the sun in terms of cases that we're getting reports from seafarers where uh, it, and, and we had one situation where a, a seafarer had suffered a stroke on board and was denied medical care. He could not be evacuated ashore and we had to intervene at actually a fairly high diplomatic level to get that seafarer off the ship into a hospital. Uh, and so these are the kinds of roadblocks that we're running into. Um, the Secretary General is holding a series of bilateral meetings with key countries in an effect to, uh, to make progress. And we're also, uh, there was a large multilateral meeting held hosted by the UK a couple of weeks ago, uh, and we're looking at organizing regional sessions. Um, but I, the, the key here is, as I said, this is an all hands on deck evolution. It requires uh, domestically, as I think one of the previous speakers mentioned, it requires a cross ministry approach. Uh, you simply can't be talking to the Minister of Transport. You've got to be talking to the Minister of Health. Um, you've got to be talking to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. You've got to be talking to Home Affairs with respect to visa issues. And if it's not a whole of government effort, uh, there are going to be issues. So in response to this, the UN family has really taken a cross-agency approach. And I think Guy mentioned the level of collaboration uh, has really been unprecedented between the IMO, the International Labor Organization, ICAO, with respect to getting flights to get seafarers home, the World Health Organization, so that we can access public health officials, to try to get them to recognize that a one-size-fits-all solution for, to protect public safety usually won't work for seafarers. The World Customs Organization with respect to, with respect to uh, restrictions in ports, uh, UNCTAD, um, we're working with the UN Secretary General's office. He issued a very strong statement in support of seafarers about a month ago. And then our, our industry and, non, and other NGO partners, ICS, ITF, IMHA, Intermanager, Intertanko, BIMCO, uh, ISWAN, um, we're all involved, um, but the more people that can become attuned to this 
you never know who knows the right person in a government to unlock the key to getting these things opened up. So we're, we're trying everything we can. It, to turn to uh, to to a question from uh, from our audience that they're they're starting to flow in, um, so so we've talked about how the the, the shipping industry has uh, a somewhat has a fairly low profile, uh, and um, and crew members you know are also somewhat kind of invisible in terms of the uh, the the public uh, awareness of this situation. So one of our one of our audience asks the, the charters, however have uh, a much bigger brand names, the, the customers of the ship owners. Um, how do we, how does the industry get those um, uh, bigger name charters to, to lobby from change? Guy, do you have a thought about that? I think everyone's got a part to, to play in this. And I do believe charters do have a, a very real role in helping facilitate it. If only allowing for deviations from, uh, from charters in order to go and do crew changes, so there's, there's lots of things. This just has to be a shared endeavour. There's no doubt in my mind. And I think some charters are starting to step up to the plate, but we need everyone to understand that this is going to be only solved by industry working together and by, and as Fred says, across governments as well, everyone has to play their part in order to, to make this happen. But it was, um, there was a question in the Q&A box about the ministerial summit, and Fred mentioned it as well. And that was, that was the whole idea about, about that was to, to get governments to sign up for skills and pledges to encourage them to work not just with the transport industry but beyond that with their immigration and others and, and we you know 30 countries could um, actually sign up for this pledges what we'd like now is far many more governments to also sign up and that way we can attack it so uh it Another question, and this one is for um, for the ship managers. I mean, are are you running into any um, any questions? Any, I'm sorry, any uh, any uh, problems uh, with getting crew back on board the ships when when they're allowed to get on board? Um, are there um, uh, are there hesitancy by crew members to get on ships? And um, you know, are they looking for any specific terms that uh, higher salaries, shorter terms of employment on uh, to to get on board a vessel? May my reply to this, but Eric, can I comment a bit on the previous uh, sure. topic? Uh, for sure, this problem, the heat of the problem, uh, lies on the ship operators. Yeah. because they are direct uh, employers of the seafarers. But uh, I would like to agree with Guy that uh, all the stakeholders, uh, it's very crucial that take up their share on the solution of this problem. If we go beyond the governments and the problems and the difficulties that Fred uh, just mentioned before, because I have to say that the IM protocols are very well structured very well uh, explained, laid out, but then uh, we heard that if they are uh, implemented. So uh, this implementation apparently has proven to be very difficult. And in many cases, uh, not all parts of the state are functioning in a kind of harmony to facilitate the necessary processes for the Crew repatriation. We have faced situations where some parts of the bureaucracy didn't respond uh, 
uh, following uh, some formalities that under the circumstances were simply impossible to be filled. So coming back, the, all the stakeholders, including the charters, should uh, take up uh, their role in solution, giving a solution to this problem. Uh, because coming to what stewards asked before, whether we can coordinate with other uh, ship managers uh, in a in a trump uh, that means uh, uh, shipping that doesn't follow the same route on all cases and all so it's a lot of random uh, let's say instances that need uh, a very strong coordination in order to be able to to organize for example a flight if you have uh, five or six or ten seafarers to repatriate from a certain location it is not very easy like probably it happened with the um, cruise industry uh, to have the, the magnitude they are in order to do this coordination so uh, coming back to your question eric the, apparently the seafarers that are assured are eager to be employed and this is a general uh, comment in certain occasions due to the residence of their uh, uh, where they are because in Euronav we employ more than 15 different nationalities it is a difficulty also because of the restrictions of the state that the seafarers are residents so that is uh, an obstacle and uh, I would like to say that to repeat and clarify that when I said at the beginning that uh, Euronav is providing the relief for the seamen that uh, employs is not only for the people that are, uh, so, so to say, stuck on board, but also to the people that are uh, stuck ashore. So we are also taking care there. So re recapping, uh, this is not an issue in general. Uh, except when the particular restrictions apply to the state where the seafarers uh, resident uh, occur. So uh, another, another question from, from our audience today, um, and, and I'd like to uh, ask Andreas this one. So the, the question is whether there's an increasing problem with mental health conditions on board ships uh, and uh, uh, I know that uh, Colombia has had a, a program going to to address this. Could you tell us a little bit about um, about um, mental well, health uh, among Col Colombia seafarers? Well, the mental health topic, uh, I think, is uh, has become more on the uh, agenda lately. However, Colombia, I think, since about a year and a half ago, we implemented already a mental health uh, free hotline for our seafarers where they can communicate with dedicated psychologists um, through a free phone or through WhatsApp. And um, I can tell you that the initial stage about uh, a year and a year and a half ago, that was difficult even to convince the people to use the hotline because you know, if you tell somebody call the mental health uh, hotline, it may be even misunderstood that you have a problem and therefore is not um, uh, muscular enough to do it and so on. And, um, and obviously the reports we, we, we get nowadays uh, is that the mental health hotline is actually being used uh, frequently by a number of, uh, of seafarers. 
by a very large number of seafarers, and uh, and this is to their credit, really. And uh, and in some cases, we had to work also together with the psychologists so that we prevent, you know, uh, difficult situations on board the ships. So overall, the experience we have uh, by using the mental health uh, hotline is uh, is very good. I would really recommend it to um, to all the operators, and something it's something which is is increasingly becoming necessary, really. Now, the fact is that uh, despite the support that you are offering through the, the specialists, the main thing is the office people, the people that they discuss with the families, the money agents, to be very close to the seafarer. Uh, they need to be able to, to understand that they have a partner on the other side of the line or the email and to understand that the information which has been provided is also transparent, it's clear. And uh, what I mentioned earlier is that we're trying to work very closely together with our seafarers and the mining agencies to limit um, the, the problems with mental health and so on. And uh, here I would like to refer to what Samadhi said for the people who are also at home, because they are also suffering because they are not earning sufficient money and so on. So it's a double problem. And, and I would say that a lot of respect is being paid nowadays to the seafarers, of course, for the problems they have, but also the mining agents uh, that they are based locally and they have to face uh, the, the seafarer who knocks on the door and, uh, and, and makes a complaint that he has to go uh, somewhere and work. The, the other topic I like to mention on the, on the future and how we see really the different nationalities, we have seen that because of the problems which are there mostly in, uh, in India and Philippines, even China with the seafarers, there is a lot of demand nowadays for East European officers. So our main sources were typically from East Europe and uh, China, as well as uh, partly in Vietnam and, uh, and uh, of course, Philippines. Whereas now we see that our East European officers are very much in demand, which creates a need perhaps to pay a little bit more on the wages just to secure the service. Uh, typically, our seafarers are, are loyal to the company, but the industry needs to move towards the direction where there is uh, availability of seafarers. And at the moment, uh, th this is what's happening. Overall, we are, we are um, handling the mental health issue very well. And I think this is also obvious by the fact that uh, worldwide, um, uh, it was mentioned earlier that 250,000 um, seafarers are stranded on board, but the ships are still operating, which shows the heroic and I mean the, the word heroic efforts of all the shipping companies and the collaboration between our industry. The thing is, perhaps, and we have failed to show this and express this loud and clear towards the governments. And this is the main problem we have. Right. If I could turn to you, um, how, how, does, how, does the, uh, how does the IMO see the, the mental health ramifications of this current crisis? Well, I, I think the longer it goes on, uh, the more mental health issues we are seeing. Um, 
it's pretty clear that while I, Andreas is correct, a, a lot of the companies and the ship management companies have been doing a lot to institute mental health programs. Uh, and, and that's really important. The level of frustration, uh, particularly by those that have had their contracts extended, uh, you know, and they don't know when they're gonna be able to get home, um, is it's growing day by day. Uh, and, and then when you have, that's compounded by a situation where the, the ship owner or the ship management company may make all good efforts to execute a crew change and then something causes it to uh, go awry at the last minute and the seafarer either has to return home or go back to their ship uh, if they or not get off the ship. Um, that just increases the level of frustration exponentially. There was a, a case last week where a crew was coming into a country to, to conduct a relief uh, and the seafarers on the ship were all expecting to go home well, the incoming crew was required to have a negative uh, COVID test within 48 hours of arrival. They missed that timeline by 11 minutes and were sent home. And so because of inflexibility in the system, you created an enormous amount of frustration for multiple seafarers for the company that made the efforts to conduct the crew change. Uh, and this, this really is, it just can't continue. Uh, and I, I would say on the mental health issue, one thing that, uh, that both ICS guy and, and IMO, um, you know, we've been tracking closely and, and it's really quite tragic as we are seeing a spike in suicides for people that have just lost hope. And, uh, and you know, we, we need to prevent that from happening and that it, if we can get people home and we can get people to work, um, we, can, we can lower that risk. We have a, we have a question from... Uh, Sir, uh, oh, we, we have something on the mental health. Uh, oh yes, please, yes, It is indeed uh, a very uh, big concern for all of us. Uh, obviously, I would like just to add to what Andrea said that uh, how important it is to have the give the chance to every seafarer on board to have a direct contact. Should she uh, or he uh, would like to have to a uh, professional support. I think also the role of the master on board, the captain of the ship, which is in any way very important, now is becoming even more important uh, in order to coach and uh, handle all the frustration that is. Because we say here that we receive the heat as a ship managers at the office, but definitely the master on board is receiving the first wave of this frustration. So it is really very important to, for supporting all the seafarers and especially the master for an additional role to identify and send us any early signals of uh, frustration that goes to a point that needs a really uh, a very big attention and action. So we have a, we have a question um, from uh, Roberto Gianetta. He's the chairman of the Hong Kong Liner uh, Shipping Association. There was, a, there was a letter by Mr. Gianetta and um, the head of the Hong Kong Shipowners Association uh, that uh, we report in Tradewinds on today about uh, d discussing how the new restrictions or the increased restrictions in Asia um, you know, may were a result of, you know, quote unquote, um, rotten apples, including some um, 
some some fake medical certificates going around and, and things like that. And um, uh, Roberto asks um, whether the panel has any suggestions uh, about how the industry can speak out about these practices um, as an industry. Any thoughts from the panel on that? May I give a quick thought? Just a quick thought. I feel this is an overwhelmingly uh, strict approach for a group of people, the CIFARs, because I'm very sure that every country has a lot of uh, measures and uh, regulations to be followed by all the uh, population. And I'm very sure that many people are violating uh, these uh, processes. But the result is not to punish the whole population for that. So for me, it is uh, unreasonably uh, harsh reaction to, to punish a group of people because some of them, few of them, uh, did not follow the rules. I, I, as we're talking here, uh, one of the thoughts that came into my mind is, is the power of social media. And, uh, you know, we can look at trends across society in terms of uh, fundamental social change based on a groundswell of, 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 of issues, certainly here in the United States. So one of the things I think that the industry could probably do is, is really encourage uh, the seafarers themselves to speak up. To, to speak with their, their, with, with, their, with their local representative in their country, uh, to speak with family members, to put it out on social media in terms of the plight that they're really experiencing. So uh, it, 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 it may be um, uh, um, uh, uh, sort of a, a, you know, bargaining with the devil in terms of creating a, a groundswell of this, but it seems that the industry, the voice is not uh, loud enough right now, certainly with what's happened in, in Asia over the last week or so is that maybe we can encourage uh, uh, to the seafarers themselves, basically, to really speak up out on social media about the issues that they're dealing with. Uh, thoughts to, from the panel? I think if, if I may, I think we've had, there has been quite a lot of media attention on the seafarers. You know, we, we, we've done loads uh, around the world on that, and that, that's been good. The difficulty is it's still not getting the cut through to the parts of the government which need to take action. With regards to the, the, the comment made by the Hong Kong Association, it is really sad that um, the actions of a very few have, have led to this collective sort of shutting down of the industry. Zamati says it, that that seems to be wrong and would urge, I think, a proportionate response to it all. And we'll do all we can, I think, as an industry to make sure everyone does follow the protocols which we painstakingly developed and put in place. If they run to 68 pages, um, of, of, of trying to look at every stage and it, it's incumbent on everybody then to follow these protocols. Otherwise, we get the situation which we've now seen recently in, in Hong Kong and in Singapore um, where there's allegations of false negative certificates and things like that. So we're on the testing regime and other things, we're redoubling our efforts to make sure that governments can have confidence in all of that. But it does also take the individual to have personal responsibility for their actions and that's something that, that we really need to, to, to get home as well. Um, looking towards the future a bit, and this is uh, a question from, uh, related to a question from the audience. I wonder if, uh, if this situation where, you know, 
people who would think of a seafaring career um, would see this risk, this risk of being stuck on a vessel um, uh, well beyond their contract. Um, does this make it more difficult to recruit seafarers for, um, for the future? Um, uh, Chris, do you have an idea about, uh, a thought on that? Um, uh, thanks, Eric. I think I think that's a potential risk. Uh, you, we've, there are all sorts of issues that have the potential to disincentivize talented young people from going to go to sea. You know, in the past, we've seen the criminalisation of masters and officers in the wake of what are what are accidents, uh, and that that I think sends the wrong the wrong message to uh, to people. And I think this is this is something else in the same genre that um, uh, and you know if we look ahead if we look ahead beyond beyond 2030 down the path towards 20 2050 uh, the shipping industry is on on the path of it's on the cusp of what of what will be the fourth propulsion revolution as we move to reducing carbon emissions co2 emissions and ultimately decarbonization of the of the industry uh, ships are going to be technologically more advanced as we go forward whilst there will be more automation um, we're still a very long way away from autonomous vessels of any of any scale and so as an industry we're we're going to need talented young people to be incentivized to go to go to sea to pursue a seagoing seagoing career uh, and this sort of thing uh, doesn't doesn't help in my view do any of the uh, the the ship yeah. happy to comment definitely the situation is not good and it doesn't help really any of the young people that want to go and and uh, have a career um on the ships um i, I have i i have a, a relative a female cadet who is uh, now on her second year and she was sailing on one on uh, on board the ships uh, she joined sometime in um, uh, early this year, and and during the first months, she was actually not satisfied, but she was actually really relieved that while she was on board, also the family was stranded at home, so she was not losing anything by being um, on board the ship. After a few months, of course, you could see feel the anxiety. Hey, I have to go home. And uh, uh, and when she get, when she managed to to fly back, having a chat with her, I realized that during the period on board, when they were also not able to uh, to visit the ports and you know uh, see the cities and so on, this has been really difficult for them, uh, for all the seafarers, for all the young people, but also the seafarers. So emotionally, that was a, a very big challenge. And um, and having a chat with her, I say, would you? I said, would you? You know, w will you go back for next year? She said, yes, of course. I look forward um, because now I will have to see the chance. I will have the chance to see the ports and so on. Um, so to some extent, I, I agree with Chris that the overall con concept makes it more challenging and more difficult. Education is really problematic. We have problems now sending our new cadets on board the ships. Um, but in all fairness, being a seafarer has um, traditionally, it, it was never seen as the easiest of the jobs. And, um, and I think the generation 
of the new seafarers, somehow they feel this in their uh, vein and this, it, excites, it excites them. So I want to keep a positive note on that, that you know, the, the young people that they want to, to become seafarers, they will continue uh, their career path and they will not stop that. Uh, attracting new seafarers, yes, it will be difficult and Chris is absolutely right. From our side, another, pos another positive message is that um, because of the difficult situation that we have all um, forced to experience, we, we enhanced our training abilities remotely. So um, not only Columbia, but I assume other companies as well, we have our online um, uh, training uh, possibilities we contact our seafarers on board the ships, but also the ones studying uh, and the ones at home uh, even more frequently than before. And we try to keep everybody into the team because it's important to keep the team uh, spirit uh, amongst everybody. So that's, that's also positive that because of the technology and the difficult situation that we are now being faced, we, we have to see how after COVID, how we really capitalize on the good things that we are now learning. There's there's a few questions um, in in the Q and A um, about the visa difficulties that seafarers are um, are finding. Um, are there any um, are there any efforts or or measures that are being discussed to um, to smooth this out? Uh, Fred, are you aware of anything there? Well, I, uh, this is, again is. Um, uh, a situation that varies by country to country in terms of uh, whether their consulates are open, whether the embassies are open, what their processing is like. Uh, there, there has been an issue in Europe with the ability for, um, for non-EU seafarers to get Schengen visas to transit through. To, for example, um, uh, the Netherlands has adopted the protocols and they have a very good system in place to allow for um, crew changes. The issue, uh, the, the limiting factor is the ability to issue Schengen visas for non-EU seafarers. Um, but it, it, is, it is a global problem, but it does vary from country to country. Uh, it is this, uh, the subject of, uh, that, that the Secretary General touches on when he has the, the bilateral ministerial meetings and, and will continue to address it. One of the things I'm wondering, we talked about the need for, um, for the government action here, but what, one of the things I'm wondering is whether there is more that um, the shipping industry can and should do in this situation. I um, uh, wonder if there are any, any thoughts from the panel. Uh, Stuart, for example, do you have any thoughts on what, what, what ship owners can do to, to make the, this situation better for seafarers? Thank you for asking uh, an interesting question, considering uh, kind of our company and sort of where we sit in the, in this, in the industry. Um, I think for a lot of individuals, uh, you know, money is just as important as, as health, and you can equate mental health or, or physical health also with, with one's uh, you know, monetary situation. And you know, if, you're, if you're comfortable, you're healthy. One of the things that we've been promoting uh, is to expedite payments to, to the seafarers. The industry historically pays its crew members once a month. And, uh, you know, it, that's just how it's always been done. 
so I truly believe that if you could uh, put uh, wages into the hands of crew members faster, uh, more than once a month, bi-weekly or, or on some expedited basis, you can get money into the fam money into the fam uh, hands of family members quicker. Uh, and and that, I think that's a, a very simple thing uh, that could go a long way in terms of, of helping the seafarers. Now, in conversations that we've had, uh, the industry, especially the ship management industry, is based up on a monthly is based on a monthly basis. Uh, charters pay once a month, clients pay once a month. Uh, so the industry is structured on a on a monthly uh, cash uh, uh, flow basis. But I, I I think that if you could take the simple step of expediting uh, payments to crew members and get it to them faster. Uh, basically, you're going to really help some folks out, and we've been pr promoting that uh, extensively over the last couple of months with some success. Uh, how about share that with the panel, Chris? If if there was anything that you could urge the shipping industry to do differently, what uh, what what would you suggest? I don't know. I'm just. Um, I don't think I'm in a position really to uh, to, to make any suggestions on that um, on on that topic. Um, I pass on that one. How about um, thank, thank, no problem? Thank you. Uh, uh, how how about uh, Stamatis? Anything that you'd like to see the shipping industry do differently in this in this situation? Uh, what uh, Stuart mentioned before, uh, looking into how uh, we. Uh, pay the safari is something that we are also looking into it. Uh, however, allow me to say that I don't think that this is uh, what uh, could uh, solve the particular issue. Mm -hmm. uh, for if we are talking for this uh, COVID-19 situation, is uh, we should continue our efforts to make public and uh, engage the public opinion more on the, the severity and the seriousness of the problem. And I agree that traditionally, uh, shipping industry is not in the forefront of the daily news, unless something uh, really bad is happening. So uh, now the shipping operations are continued, as Andrea said before, despite all this, the ships are continuing doing the trade. They do it well, they do it properly. So it is a, a tough uh, uh, task to bring this up to uh, the public opinion as an issue for everybody. So uh, this is one thing that we should do. Uh, and uh, the other is what we continuously do, as I said in the beginning. Uh, monitoring the situation, identifying every opportunity for getting uh, the crew changes uh, affected, and um, do this relentless effort to uh, somehow convince all the key uh, governments that the seafarers are key workers and they have to take, be taken uh, seriously as such. And, th and then I need to repeat that for me, uh, the fact that a few seafarers have violate, violated regional regulations, it is serious. I fully agree and we have to, to look at it as a very serious issue. But uh, the countermeasure to be a complete ban 
of the CFRs because of that, it, it doesn't serve at all uh, any purpose, in my opinion. So we- I wanted to, I wanted to if, Eric, if I can just jump in. Stanislas, um, I didn't suggest that, that that's gonna solve the problem because the problem is, is a global problem. Uh, and and uh, I don't know how we, we, we solve it. Um, uh, ultimately, it's gonna be solved with, with a vaccine. Uh, but I do think that the, 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 the industry can do things to help crew members out now. Uh, food, um, internet is a big thing, and it was encouraging uh, the other day when we had our, our talk that the companies out there are opening up uh, internet access for their crew members. Uh, um, mental health lines, um, uh, compensation, those are essentially the things that, that can, you can control today that in some small way can at least relieve them of some anxiety of the things that can be controlled. We can't control the bigger things, but I think that we can control the smaller things. So that yes, was really yes. the point that I was trying to make. Yeah, yeah fully agree. Uh, the only thing is that I fully appreciate all you said, but as I, as I said at the beginning, these are issues that we really uh, consider as very important and we are uh, offering. And, and there's always room for improvement. I don't I disagree. And we will uh, focus there. I, I think I, I, I think the sorry. No, please go ahead. What I wanted to say is that I think both Stuart and Stamadis they, they are spot on, and this has to do really with the new era or the improvements that we will see after COVID. Um, a, a year ago, some of our clients would perhaps say, "No, internet is too expensive; you cannot have it on board." Now the same people are telling us, "Please install." Um, uh, equipment to enable uh, internet uh, connectivity. So, so it's a trend, and th this is a point we need to capitalize on the difficult situation we go through, so that we make life easier or better for the seafarers in the future. As an example, what we have now decided to implement and offer to the crew is also a specialized healthcare scheme over and above or in parallel to what has been offered already through, um, uh, through the arrangements. So, so the future is that, in the future we will see the seafarers being treated mostly as, hopefully more as special uh, uh, workers, same like airlines, hopefully. And at the same time, we will see the benefits of the seafarers closer to the, to the benefits of the people working at the offices. And this is connected clearly with the payment systems, the insurances and stuff like that. Even, even I want to jump in. Shorter contract uh, durations. I want to jump in and ask uh, Fred a question actually. Thank you, Andreas. I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, by the way, we are past the hour. Uh, and unfortunately, Guy had a, an, another engagement and he had to drop off. Uh, but given the great attendance and all the questions coming through, we extended the session for a little while. Fred, I have a question for you. You have all these uh, agreements, uh, summits, and so on. So my understanding is that uh, compliance is on a voluntary basis from the parties that come together to these agreements. Is there any kind of enforcement mechanism that, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm going back to what Stamadis was saying that, you know, because of a few rotten apples, you destroy the orchard. Uh, is there any kind of uh, 
enforcement at, at your level that can keep uh, behavior more or less, how can I call it, uh, coordinated or to adhere to what you have agreed to? Um, I think that th that I can answer that question on two different levels. First is the, the um, treaty obligations that are already in place through the Maritime Labor Convention, uh, through the uh, Facilitation Convention of the IMO, uh, with respect to medical care through the, the Search and Rescue Convention. And what we're seeing, uh, uh, regrettably, is that, um, but perhaps understandably, uh, countries abrogating their, their obligations under these instruments uh, in the desire to protect public health and safety. Uh, and that, that also can't continue indefinitely. There has to be a balance there in terms of the, the implementation of the existing treaty obligations. Now for things like the protocols, um, the IMO Council is meeting right now uh, and will be uh, finishing up their work next week uh, to get uh, the IMO, com the technical committees moving again uh, to start looking at, the, at the, the safety issues, the environmental issues. And uh, based on the, the input that's been received by the council thus far, it's clear that there are gonna be proposals uh, to actually create uh, enforceable regulations with respect uh, to some of the issues we've been talking about today. And that those proposals will go on the table you know, in, in short order because there certainly have been significant lessons learned from this crisis uh, that need to be translated into, into positive action and improvement in the future. Fred, is there any timetable? Well, the, I, we're expecting that the committee work will, will resume in the fall and, and uh, the, the, that uh, there will be uh, on the agenda of each committee at the IMO, there will be an agenda item regarding the response to the pandemic and what needs to be done now in terms of when that might translate into um, specific action and specific new regulations that's hard to speculate on. And on the other hand, if I may turn the question to Stamatis and Andreas, is there anything that the industry can do uh, on the coordinating level uh, to make sure that these uh, few rotten apples remain as few as possible? I so believe that didn't mean to put in uh, with your. Ah. Okay, yeah. let uh, let me just comment. Uh, okay, the, the the topic is is obviously very sensitive, and nobody really endorses um, falsifying tests and stuff like that. I mean that's clear. Um, what we are now doing, because we are all learning we are optimizing really the ways of performing the crew changes and making sure that our crew, when they go on board, they are uh, COVID free. So um, the, the protocol which applies to, to a wide number of companies is that the seafarer, uh, if we take as an example um, uh, in the Philippines, the, the seafarers, they are, um, they are all, uh, look, they are all isolated for a number of days, and then they undergo a test through a specified laboratory. Then they fly, 
at the arrival port, uh, they are, sorry, at the arrival airport, they are tested again. And when they are free, they also go on board the ship. So, so there is a defined procedure which somehow uh, safeguards that you will not have um, uh, people tested positive on board the ships. Having said that, there are always exceptions. There is always a problem which arises or uh, perhaps a certain location they cannot do the proper test. Thankfully, on board our cargo ships, we didn't really have any, any, any positive cases, but we had people that they were tested negative from their destination port, and then at the arrival port, they were positive. And I don't want really to say why, and I cannot really um, uh, uh, blame anybody, but the way we do it, we make sure nowadays that we go through dedicated laboratories and we do the testing both before flying and after flying. So there is a certain um, safety net that uh, the people, they don't go on board the ships. So this is, this is a protocol which somehow works, but it's more costly, obviously. Understood the question from Nicholas is that uh, uh, if there are cases that are violating regional regulations, how the industry can uh, prevent the retaliation, so to say, to affect all the seafarers, if I understood well the question. How you can prevent retaliation on one hand and how you can also isolate those uh, bad apples and so, you know, kick them out of, of the system. Course. Of course, uh, as you said, uh, every shipping company needs to act uh, responsibly. This is not the only uh, way, only area that uh, somebody needs to be uh, responsible. So this is one of the aspects of the activities of a company that needs to be uh, uh, taken responsibly as every other uh, process. And uh, definitely there are the protocols. Uh, but uh, talking for the whole industry, not uh, every company can guarantee what uh, will happen in the industry. It's, uh, it's very difficult. So the associations, industry associations, have to take part there and uh, somehow enhance the awareness and the seriousness of these matters. Yeah, can I just add, add a comment um, there? That perhaps one way of doing this is to um, uh, get a greater degree of engagement between the departing crew and the uh, the the arrive the embarking embarking crew that you know they both have an interest in making sure that they can um, make the transits to and from the vessel effect effectively and if there's communication between those those two crews that they're encouraging each other um that it's in everybody's interest to observe the uh, the restraints that are necessary to make sure that, that that exchange that change can take place as smoothly as possible well, i think uh, peer, peer pressure I, can be I, quite I had, I had one quick question <clears throat> yesterday i saw an article uh, I, and Andreas, I think I sent it to you or, or maybe the panel uh, regarding Captain Sakos uh, in an interview uh, that he talked about that, uh, that some of the charters now are uh, refusing um, 
to uh, work with ships that have uh, crew members on extended contracts. It was really interesting issues the first time it sort of popped up. And I'm curious from the panel if you've experienced this or you believe that that's going to be um, an increasing problem. We have not experienced this, at least I should say yet. Uh, but as I said before, it is important that all stakeholders are uh, taking their role into uh, solving this problem. So it is important that the charters also contribute to the solution of this problem. Well, as our... Uh... Uh, what, oh, what I would say on this topic, especially this question, Stuart, um, you know, we live in a commercial world and the charters, they have a selection of ships. And, um, and if they have the option of selecting a ship that the crew has just been um, signed on, and then if you have the selection of a, crew, of a ship that the crew is already on board uh, 12 months, and the ship is trading in a difficult area, it's anybody's guess what the charterers would select. Uh, but the, the thing is, um, it's down to the operator as well. So uh, definitely, uh, the comment of Captain Sagos uh, has uh, certain validity in uh, as as he has the vast experience with their own ships as well. Absolutely. Well, as our time uh, draws to a close here, I, I just wanted to thank everyone on the panel and everyone who's tuned in for uh, for the lively discussion and all the great questions. Uh, and Nicholas, I, I turn it over to you. Well, my closing remarks is uh, a tremendous thanks to all of you. It has been a very insightful discussion. It's a topic I think that is at the forefront of reality right now. Uh, so Eric, thank you for moderating it. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Stuart and Chris, uh, Ship Money and Steamship Mutual for uh, uh, sponsoring the event and also for participating. Andreas, thank you for being the initiator of this. And Stamatis, of course, uh, uh, thank you very much for your insight uh, and uh, we had Fred also and Guy. It was a great panel. So thank you all. By the way, the replay will be available for anyone who would like to uh, come in and listen to it. It's very interesting that despite the fact that we went past 20 minutes to the hour, we kept attendance and questions keep flying in. So uh, I will share them the, the questions with all of you in case you would like to uh, engage one-on-one -on -one with uh, those who uh, submitted them. Again, thank you to everybody, and uh, thank you, Eric. Thank you for being a great moderator as well. Thank you. Yes, great. thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you. Thank you to all. Thank you, everybody. Bye bye. Thank you.